Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to Leadership Stories, a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring the intersection of leadership and public service. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and the Leadership Fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Government has many diverse and unique missions, but a singular constant remains, regardless of mission set, and that is serving the public above all else. Between the thought and the deed, notes Aaron Wadowski, there is a vast chasm. That chasm can be bridged only by taking seriously the task of organizing work, which takes leadership. And leadership stories are at the core of this show. This is the first in a series exploring the leadership stories and public service of nine leaders, encompassing a wide range of disciplines, a diverse set of experiences, and a vast span of geographies. In this edition, I will introduce you to four of the nine executives leading missions and programs that include compensating the sick and injured from the 9-11 terrorist attacks, providing development and humanitarian assistance facilitating government-wide acquisition, technology, and innovation, and ensuring the statistical integrity of government data. In the aftermath of the September 11th terrorist attacks on the United States, Congress created the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund, the VCF, which provided compensation for economic and non-economic loss to individuals who were killed or physically injured in the attacks. In 2011, As it became clear, the exposure to toxins generated in the aftermath of the attacks was having lingering health effects. Congress passed and the president signed a new law, which reactivated the VCF to accept claims for a specific time frame and expanded its pool of eligible claimants. President Trump signed into law H.R. 1327, the VCF Permanent Authorization Act. This act extends the claims filing deadline until 2090, and appropriates such funds as may be necessary to pay all eligible claims. Rupa Bhattacharya, special master of the VCF, has led the fund since 2016 and explains the mission of the fund. It was created as an alternative to tort litigation um, so that these matters wouldn't have to be resolved in the courts. So it was very, very limited in scope. When I came on board in 2016, we had $7.375 total billion in funding, and we were slated to close in December of 2020. So when Congress established the VCF in 2001, it created this special master position. And the intent really was to create someone who could serve as a neutral arbiter. Um, They wanted to take it outside of the government. They wanted to make sure that it was someone who wasn't infected by politics and have someone serve as a neutral arbiter because they vested Congress, when I say they, I mean Congress, vested a tremendous amount of discretion in this person. The way that the statute is set up, it was set up that way back in 2001. It remains so to this day, is that the special master makes the final determinations on these awards, and they're not subject to any sort of judicial review. So the decisions that are being made by the special master 
culture are final. We have an administrative internal appeal process. That mm-hmm. was true in the CF1 as well. So there is an internal mechanism for reconsideration, but there's no outside review of these awards. And so they really wanted to create this sort of mechanism that was basically the last word. And that's why they used the special master term. It was created as an appointment made by the attorney general. Leading such a critically important program can be quite challenging. Rupa Bhattacharya outlines why. The biggest challenge I have, and it's been the same challenge since I started in this position, is to get claims reviewed and awards out to these claimants in a manner that is timely, fair, and as efficient as possible. It has always been my goal to try to do that from submission to determination in 12 months or less. We were significantly behind that goal when I started in 2016. We've gotten closer to it, but we're not there yet. But we are definitely trying to get there. The one thing that has changed significantly is obviously with the permanent authorization of the VCF, funding is no longer a problem. Mm -hmm. For a very, very long time, for the first three years of of my tenure, one of my biggest concerns was to make sure that we didn't run out of money, that we had enough money to compensate everyone, at least at some level, who came in the door because they were suffering from an illness as related to their 9-11 exposure. Look, it goes without saying that there is no amount of money that can compensate for these sorts of losses. But we're created for that purpose, and we do what we can, and we're hopeful that it provides at least some amount of relief to these claimants. The problem of money no longer exists because we have now been permanently funded and we have been given by Congress a grant of discretion to make as much awards as we think are necessary. But that said, it has raised a new challenge, which is that we received that grant from Congress because we had demonstrated the fiscal responsibility and the responsible stewardship of government funding that was necessary to get that level of confidence. We, of course, need to maintain that as we move forward. Moving forward has become easier with the passage of the Victims' Compensation Fund Permanent Authorization Act. VCF Special Master Rupa Bhattacharya tells us more about this new law. The law remains unchanged from how it was when when we started this process. Um, But there are two very large exceptions that were part of the most recent enactment by Congress. Obviously, the length of time that claims are allowed to be filed and the removal of the funding cap. Prior to passage of the law, the deadline for filing a claim was December 18th, 2020, and a lot of our materials and our website all reflected that date. Um, Now, people can file a claim until October 1st, 2090, which is essentially intended to give everyone who was there, in however old they might have been at the time, an opportunity to file a claim with the fund if they become ill as a result of their presence. And, of course... As we've talked about, while we previously operated with a set amount of appropriated funding that we could not exceed, the new law appropriates such funds as may be necessary to pay all eligible claims. So how can you submit an eligible claim to the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund? Once again, here's Special Master Bhattacharya. So the VCF process has two distinct steps, registration and filing a claim. Registration is simple. It preserves your right to file a claim in the future if you become sick. You can register on the website, which is www.vcf.gov, or over the phone by calling the VCF helpline, 1-855-885-1555. You don't need to be sick, exhibiting symptoms, 
or have a certification from the World Trade Center Health Program in order to register. We encourage everyone who may have been there to register with the VCF now, even if they're not sick, to avoid missing any of our deadlines. There is no harm in registering, and it does not obligate you to file a claim, and it does not waive any legal rights. The second step is filing a claim. And filing a claim is done once the World Trade Center Health Program, which is our sister program operated out of HHS, the Department of Health and Human Services, has certified that you have an eligible 9-11 related illness. Filing a claim requires the completion of a claim form and the submission of a number of relevant documents. As a general rule, we review claims first in, first out. So we review them in the order in which the claim was submitted. And the time frame for processing depends on the type and complexity of the claim, whether the documents needed have been submitted, and, other, and a variety of other factors. We review claims in two phases, eligibility and compensation. For eligibility, we're looking at the claim to determine whether the claimant is eligible to receive compensation under the parameters that are laid out in the statute. Getting a fuller understanding of the appropriate compensation, the eligibility requirements, and things like that rest on communication with the 9-11 community, and it's critical. Rupa Bhattacharya, Special Master of the Victim Compensation Fund, explains the importance of outreach to this community. One of the primary concerns I had when I took the job in 2016 was to try to make sure that people who were eligible for compensation were aware that the program was out there. We have never assumed that anyone or any group already knows about the VCF. We continue to cultivate important relationships within the 9-11 community, working through the unions, working through the employers, working through the city, um, to piggyback on their outreach events, to offer our own information to them so that they can distribute it to their claimant, to their employees and their um, members. Our outreach efforts run the gamut, um, from interviews like this to town hall meetings hosted by the Manhattan Borough President or members of Congress um, who have been very involved, particularly the local New York delegation. Uh, we do, we've done lunches with retired union workers. And so we have really made an effort to try to make ourselves available whenever possible. Up until relatively recently, we've had to be very careful um, because up until relatively recently, all of our administrative costs, this is still true, come out of the fund, and the fund was limited. And so every dollar that we spent on outreach was a dollar that we didn't have to give to a claimant. Now that we have less concern about funding, we hope that we are able to dedicate consistent with our need to remain fiscally responsible, some more efforts to the outreach. Special Master of the VCF, Rupa Bhattacharya, highlights some of the key accomplishments of the fund and then focuses on its future. The clearest indication of our success is the permanent authorization. It is very unusual for a federal government program to be authorized with essentially unlimited funding for 90 years. Um, and we, we feel that that's a testament to the program that we've created um, and that we've operated for the last four or five years in a way that does exactly what it's supposed to. The fact that Congress would enter into that sort of authorization with no substantive alteration of the procedures that we use, the mechanisms that we use to calculate awards, of the discretion that's been awarded to the special master. All of that was left in place. And so I think that clearly reflects that the program is doing exactly what it was supposed to do. That said, 
permanent authorization creates a new challenge. We have to figure out how this program looks going forward, and we have to take a program that was created to serve a limited term, Mm -hmm. was then renewed for another limited term. And at each one of those stages, we made decisions about how the process was going to go forward, what sort of technology we were going to use that were based in the fact that we had limited funds and limited time. Now we no longer face either of those constraints, although as of course we have a responsibility to be fiscal and fair. And so we have to figure out how we're going to move this program onto a permanent footing. Um, And that is an an effort that is underway. It is something that we're talking about and thinking about on a daily basis. Um, But I think it's going to be a little while longer before we really see where that's going to lead us. Stay tuned for more leadership stories from public servants when this special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. Welcome back to Leadership Stories, a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. Taking care of 9-11 victims to lending a helping hand to other nations in need, our next leader, Bonnie Glick, Deputy Administrator of the United States Agency for International Development, USAID, seeks to deliver sustainable development solutions. As part of its mission, USAID advances U.S. national and economic prosperity, demonstrates American cooperation, and promotes a path to self-reliance and resiliency of aid recipients. Its deputy administrator, Bonnie Glick, offers more of a historical context and underscores USAID's critical foreign policy role. USAID, the United States Agency for International Development, was established by President Kennedy in 1961, and he set it up with the recognition that it is our moral obligation as a wealthy nation to help countries that are much poorer than we are. Over time, over the last nearly 60 years, the U.S. Agency for International Development has evolved its focus to focus more on countries and their journeys to self-reliance. What do we do at USAID? We reduce the reach of conflict around the world so that conflicts that are breaking out, wherever those may be, impact the fewest number of people possible. We work very hard to prevent the spread of pandemic diseases. So one that we're seeing right now that we're seized with is the Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. We work to counteract the drivers of violence around the world that can lead to instability and can lead to some terrible transnational crimes, things like human trafficking. We work to promote American prosperity through market expansions to enable the export of U.S. products. We create a level playing field for U.S. businesses around the world, particularly in emerging market countries. We support stable, resilient, democratic societies. And we stand with people around the world to support nations when disasters strike or when crises emerge as the world's preeminent humanitarian assistance provider. It's useful to understand how USAID is set up. We are an independent agency of the U.S. government, and we are part of the president's National Security Council. 
the foreign assistance budget of the United States is around $40 billion annually, of which USAID holds the largest portion. We are the largest development agency in the world. The purpose of foreign aid should be ending the need for its existence. And USAID provides development assistance to help partner countries on their own development journey to self-reliance. Looking at ways to lift lives, build communities, and establish self-sufficiency. Here's USAID Deputy Administrator Bonnie Glick telling us more about her role within the agency. The Deputy Administrator of USAID is the number two ranking person in the agency. I was nominated by President Trump and confirmed by the Senate to serve in this role. The deputy of most U.S. government agencies with USAID not being all that different is also the chief operating officer. So there's a big management component of the agency, managing uh, the agency's budget, managing a staff of 11,000 people in around 100 different offices and USAID missions around the world. I work closely with the United States interagency, part of the national security infrastructure, to craft the vision for foreign assistance around the world. Crafting a vision for foreign assistance around the world can be quite challenging. Once again, USAID Deputy Administrator Bonnie Glick explains. So the biggest challenge of any U.S. agency is... Our budget. We have to ensure that we are excellent stewards of the taxpayers' dollars. Every single day, I think, how is it that I am making sure that we are using taxpayer dollars, your dollars, my dollars, the audience dollars, in the most effective and efficient way possible? The way that I'm focusing on this is by looking at USAID somewhat through a business lens. So at USAID, the Agency for International Development, we talk about developing countries. In industry, you talk about emerging markets or growth markets. Budgeting is a challenge. In order to solve these problems... I want to engage with the private sector, both international corporations, American-based international corporations, but also local private sectors, because we want to make sure that programs that USAID funds and runs are sustainable, and likely the best way for a program or a project to remain sustainable is by having it run through a private sector lens where there are benefits that accrue both to the investors, businesses, donors, as well as to the beneficiary community. Another big challenge that we have is in the area particularly of humanitarian assistance. The United States is the largest global bilateral donor of humanitarian assistance. The United States will always be there when countries face a disaster. But it's really important that others contribute to these humanitarian responses as well. So a large component of what we do is 
is working with other international donors to ensure that there's appropriate burden sharing in the costs associated with uh, humanitarian responses. And that, too, is a way of ensuring that we're good stewards of the taxpayers' dollars. Addressing these challenges effectively rests on creating a solid strategic vision. Bonnie Glick, Deputy Administrator of USAID, outlines the agency's strategic policy framework. And she puts a finer point that this framework emerges the practical and the theoretical. The USAID policy framework aims to bring the sort of ethereal academic approach to development into the real-world operational space in which USAID is operating around the world. In April of this year, USAID released what we're calling the policy framework, and it actually articulates the agency's approach to our mission, vision, and strategic orientation around what we refer to as a journey to self-reliance. The policy framework will allow us as USAID to be a better partner, strengthen our ability to accelerate development progress while meeting urgent humanitarian needs. And it makes USAID a more effective provider of foreign assistance on behalf of the American people. To capitalize on development gains and respond to complex challenges that present themselves in the new development landscape, we focus on what we're referring to as a journey to self-reliance. At the same time, we're transforming our organization with a single goal in mind, working to end the need for foreign assistance. Our development model is rooted in building self-reliance in each of the countries in which we operate. For USAID, this is an explicit pivot toward a much more country-centric, locally-led, and data-driven approach to development assistance based on proven development best practices. I'm going to distill that really quickly into what we mean by a journey to self-reliance because this underpins everything that we're working to accomplish at USAID. We look at countries. Remember, we were talking earlier about developing countries versus emerging market countries, aid beneficiaries versus customers and clients. Our goal, ultimately, as I said, is to end the need around the world for foreign assistance. Of course, different countries are in different places along that journey to self-reliance. So there are countries that are at the beginning stages and countries that are closer to transitioning from an aid recipient country to a more partner-centered country and even in many cases to being a donor country itself. Technology is transforming how people worldwide access information goods, services, and opportunity. And it has the power to rapidly accelerate developing countries' journey to self-reliance. USAID's first-ever digital strategy charts an agency-wide vision for development and humanitarian assistance in the world's rapidly evolving digital landscape. Once again, here's USAID Deputy Administrator Bonnie Glick. USAID's digital strategy... Uh, will focus on USAID's long history of innovative digital development efforts. These include that USAID co-drafted and was the first official endorser of the Principles for D Digital Development. 
It led a public outreach campaign, which has resulted in the endorsement of over 100 organizations, including the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the World Bank Group, Swedish Aid, which is known as SIDA, and Aid out of the UK, which is called DFID. USAID also co-founded something called the Better Than Cash Alliance, as well as the Alliance for Affordable Internet and the Digital Impact Alliance, which have been industry leaders. And we also launched something that we call the Women Connect Challenge. USAID has been at the forefront of fighting to close the digital gender divide. The potential for digital technologies and services to drive widespread economic growth, to improve health outcomes, and to lift millions of people out of poverty is clear. But significant barriers still remain, and the resulting gaps can slow global growth. They can increase a country's risk of instability, and they can help keep countries dependent on foreign assistance. There is a digital pathway to self-reliance. As Deputy Administrator of USAID, Bonnie Glick explains. There absolutely is a digital pathway to self-reliance. Connectivity, delivered through wireless telecommunications networks, is critical for development. Countries with strong digital ecosystems foster more self-reliant and resilient societies, which in turn invest in their own infrastructure. It's a virtuous cycle. USAID plays a critical role in increasing the effective and responsible use of digital development and also creates a runway for the private sector to drive long-term growth. This is sustainable, and it makes for an excellent investment in open, interoperable, inclusive, and secure Internet, all of which are critical to maximizing the positive values of the Internet. USAID's Bonnie Glick discusses a significant organizational shift with the advent of the private sector engagement policy. She explains. USAID is undertaking a major cultural and operational transformation to expand our engagement with the private sector. This will help us achieve outcomes of shared interest and shared value. One of the things that we focus on is open markets. Open markets send signals to investors, both internal investors in a country and foreign direct investment investors. The private sector we view as the most significant force in history for lifting human lives out of poverty. We're looking at ways to move countries from being foreign assistance recipient nations to foreign direct investment recipient nations. So one of the most exciting developments in the past year was the passage of the BUILD Act in Congress. The BUILD Act led to the creation of the new U.S. International Development Finance Corporation. Shorthand is DFC. The new Development Finance Corporation, DFC, will combine all of the existing loan and loan portfolio guarantees that USAID has had historically through our Development Credit Authority. Our Development Credit Authority will be augmented with political risk insurance, loans, and loan guarantee products from the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, which was called OPIC. The new DFC, then, as you can see, is a blend of OPIC and some of USAID's assets that will also have the authority to make direct 
equity investments in projects. We're looking forward to working closely with the DFC to use its expanded set of potential tools so that we can directly support even more market-driven, private sector-led solutions at a larger scale than ever before. Stay tuned for more leadership stories from public servants when this special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. Welcome back to Leadership Stories, a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. The United States General Services Administration, GSA, is working with federal agencies on multiple fronts to save taxpayer dollars and improve the efficiency and effectiveness of the federal government. This unique mission support role ties back to GSA's founding in 1949, when President Truman sought to create one agency to help the federal government avoid senseless duplication, excess cost, and confusion in handling supplies and providing space. Allison Brigatti, GSA's Deputy Administrator, explains how it fulfills this mission, pursuing a wide range of programs that support partner federal agencies and their real property, procurement, information technology, and shared services needs. So um, GSA's mission is to deliver value and savings in real estate acquisition, technology, and other mission support services across government. And while the mission has been quite steady, we are always evolving in not just how we deliver on this critical mission support role for the government, but also in what we deliver. Um, An example of really what we've um, evolved in in terms of the how is over the last few years we've, um, and a a result of some really positive policy and industry shifts, we've been keenly focused on customer experience um, and data-driven policy and decision-making. If not the first, we were one of the first agencies to create the roles of the chief customer officer and the chief data officer. And then in terms of evolving the what, um, delivery of technology services has really become a major line of business for GSA, adding to our many-year history in real estate and acquisition of products and services. Our core lines of business are real estate, acquisition, and technology. In addition, we play significant roles in promoting management best practices and efficient government operations through the development of government-wide policies. And that resides in our government, our Office of Government-Wide Policy, which is actually the first place that I landed. That's right, yes. Yeah, when I joined GSA, I was their associate administrator. Um, our scale is pretty significant. We have more than 11,000 employees, $24 billion in annual revenues, $43 billion in assets, including property, vehicles, office equipment, a gross annual budget authority of $9.7 billion, and an additional $17.8 billion in obligations, supporting approximately $68 billion in annual contracts. Um, for context, our annual revenue puts us roughly in the top quarter of Fortune 500 companies. So we're just a, a few spots below a very well-known coffee company that will re- remain unnamed. <laughs> Um, on the real estate side, uh, with more than 368 million rentable square feet in over 8,700 active assets, um, we administer one of the largest and most diversified real estate portfolios in the world. Um, in terms of the policy side, uh, most significantly, I'm sure you've heard of the FAR or the Federal Acquisition Regulation. We manage that um, in coordination with NASA, DOD, and the Office of Management and Budget. And it sets the rules that govern the more than $500 billion in annual procurement spend by the federal government. So what exactly does the deputy administrator of GSA do 
Once again, Allison Brigatti. So I am the chief operating officer for the agency. Um, I manage the day-to-day operations. And while I do get engaged in our core business lines, um, public building service and federal acquisition service, most of my day-to-day is focused on managing the internal operations, or the CXOs, as we call them. Um, And the CXOs account for roughly 2,000 of our 11,000 employees. Um, I found this to be a really interesting and rewarding role, um, to be leading the mission support for the mission support agency. Um, And in that capacity, I oversee and and manage a number of CXOs. So I have have IT, which includes the chief data officer, chief technology officer, and the chief information security officer. I have CFO, um, and that office also includes the performance improvement officer and the enterprise risk management function. Um, HR includes workforce planning and labor relations. Mission assurance, which um, many people don't know, that manages the PIV cards, yeah. emergency response, COOP planning and exercises. Um, we have our Office of Administrative Services, which is essentially a mini GSA in GSA. And that includes our FOIA officer, records management, space management, internal acquisition, and then other um, internal mission support services, Um, our Office of Customer Experience, which includes our chief customer officer, and then finally the Small Business Utilization Office, which negotiates our small business targets with SBA and ensures that we're hitting those numbers agency-wide. I also, in my capacity, manage a couple of um, agency initiatives. One of those is the Technology Modernization Fund Project Management Office, Um, and if I think We'll probably touch on that later, but that was established by the um, MGT, or Modernizing Government Technology Act. Another big project I've been working on for the last year um, was the OPM-GSA merger, which I'm sure you've heard a lot about. Mm -hmm. Um, We're a little bit in a holding pattern right now, um, but that work is continuing. Another big project is the stand-up of NewPay. Um, which I think we're also going to talk about a little later. Um, That's the government-wide initiative to establish GSA as the single civilian payroll provider. And that work has actually just recently been transferred over to the chief of staff's office. And then finally, the presidential transition team, which a lot of people don't know that GSA uh, does, but we, we stand up the office space for the one or two transition teams, depending on the need. Managing such a diverse and expansive portfolio can be quite challenging. GSA Deputy Administrator Allison Bergatti elaborates. Um, the first one that I would think of, which isn't necessarily a challenge, but just something to really keep focused on, is, um, like for instance, all those four agency initiatives I mentioned, um, in addition to um, a lot of the work that's going on in my CXO offices, is the relationship with OMB. Um, what I didn't realize coming into GSA is that we work with them almost on a daily basis. Um, so it's really important to make sure that we have really strong relationships with them and that the communication lines remain open, that there's trust between us. So it's just kind of maintaining that relationship um, because we need we need to all be on the same page we need them to be successful. I'd say a second, a, a, one challenge that I've had coming in was there was a lack of trust uh, between the service lines and and the CXOs. They weren't sure, the, the service lines didn't know or didn't feel that they necessarily had visibility into the working capital fund bill. Mm -hmm. And they also weren't sure they were getting value Mm -hmm. for what they were paying for. Another challenge, I'd say, is is really, um, and this is something I think that's happening all over government right now, um, but it's changing the mindset of CXOs within an agency to focus on customer experience. Um, 
there's been a shift from really customer service to customer experience. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of our big, our motto for the CXOs this year going forward is, is get changing that mindset. Changing a mindset takes vision and identifying key priorities. Once again, GSA's Allison Brigatti. We have four. Um, the first one is save taxpayer money through better management of federal real estate. The second one is to establish GSA as the premier provider of efficient and effective acquisition solutions across the federal government. Three, we want to improve the way federal agencies buy, build, and use technology. And then four, we want to design and deliver expanded shared services within GSA and across the federal government to improve performance and save taxpayer money. Establishing the Technology Modernization Fund has been one way to improve performance and save taxpayer money. GSA Deputy Administrator Allison Brigatti tells us more about the TMF and how it seeks to achieve both performance improvement and money savings. So I love this initiative. It is fabulous. Um, really excited to be a part of it. Um, it was authorized by the Modernizing Government Technology Act of 2017. And since that time, the fund has received um, $100 million in FY 2018 and then another $25 million in FY 2019. We're, we're waiting to see with cross fingers that we're going to receive something in FY 20. I oversee the TMF's PMO, or Project Management Office, with our Executive Director, Liz Kane, and then Susan at Kent, the former CIO, the federal CIO, chairs the TMF board, mm-hmm. and the board's made up of um, IT and acquisition experts across government. So it's kind of like a shark, t- a a shark, shark tank process. Okay. Yeah. So agencies come in and they pitch different ideas to the board, and then the board does a very rigorous uh, vetting process with um, usually the CIOs there, sometimes their CFO, um, and then and then all the people that would be putting the project into place, and. The fund is designed to provide resources for some of those IT modernization projects that really never um, receive funding because they just never get to the top Mm -hmm. of the pile. And then the other really interesting thing that the board does is if uh, an agency comes in and says we need fifteen million, it's done in tranches. Okay. So they can, they well, they'll say okay we're going to give you two million to run a pilot or we'll give you five million to do this you know first body of work, and then you have to come in and you have to tell us what you've done, how's it working, is it progressing, are you behind schedule? Um, and then they don't, they don't get that next tranche until they can show that everything's going as it should. Um, if anything changes through the process, they have to come back in and tell the board, we missed a deadline. You know, our contract's been protested. So um, very, very close interaction between the agency representatives and the board to make sure things are on track. So it's a really, really great fund, and so far we've um, awarded seven projects, totaling $89 million. GSA's Allison Brigatti underscores the importance of government's mission, improving agency performance and saving money across the enterprise. With this critical mission, she also offers advice for those thinking about a career in public service. I would tell any young person out of college to do it. I, I've met the most amazing people at GSA, um, and many have been there for 20 or 30 or 40 years. I think you probably have had some of them on the show. I mean, they are amazing individuals. They are experts in their field. Um, and most importantly, they all love their jobs and the careers that they've had. Um, 
One of the amazing things I've noticed about GSA, and, and you know, given this is my only government experience, but um, maybe it's this way at other agencies. I don't think it is, but um, there are so many individuals at GSA who have had four or five or six different roles in the agency. And when I say different roles, it's not just moving around in one space. Somebody may have started in public building service, went to the Federal Acquisition Service, and is now in the CFO's office, um, which brings an unbelievable amount of value, I think, to the agency. GSA is really, really great about giving opportunities for growth and and letting people try different things. Stay tuned for more leadership stories from public servants when this special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. Welcome back to Leadership Stories, a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. An effective and efficient U.S. federal government requires evidence about where needs are greatest, what works, what doesn't work, where and how programs can be improved, and how programs of yesterday may no longer be suited for today. Having access to timely, accurate, reliable statistical data enables the federal government to make reasoned and disciplined decisions about where to target resources to get the largest possible return for the American taxpayer. The federal government's statistical agencies and programs play a vital role in generating that data. Timely, accurate, and relevant statistical data are the foundation of evidence-based decision-making. I had an opportunity to speak with Dr. Nancy Potok when she was the U.S. federal government's chief statistician about the history and mission of OMB's Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, the office that houses the chief statistician? Well, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, which um, I'll call OIRA, if that's okay with you, Um, it was really established back in the 70s in the Paperwork Reduction Act. Um, And a lot of people forget the information side because it's most well-known for regulation in deregulation, in reviewing government regulations. But the information side is the part that I concentrate on. Um, it It is not part of the budget or the management okay. side. It's its own office, standalone, with an administrator who is appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate, and reports to the director of OMB. Part of the um, rationale for why the office is there is really to reduce burden on the public and to have more efficient information collections across government. Um, But efficient also means high quality. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what we do in OIRA is um, we review information collections. Um, So they could be scientific studies. They could be um, studies that feed into a cost-benefit analysis that may drive a regulation. But there are also um, surveys um, this, the surveys done by the statistical agencies, and they are um, forms that people fill out to get benefits. And the main purpose is to really make sure if it's a study that it has a scientific design, mm-hmm. um, it's rigorous um, and objective and unbiased. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if it's a, a statistical collection, same thing, that it's high quality using sound methodology. Um, that does feed a lot into the regulatory process, but it has, of course, many, many other uses. Nancy Potok describes the role and responsibility of the country's chief statistician. 
Yeah, it's it's funny. When I tell people that I'm the chief statistician of the United States, States yep. there's this little pause. Then people say, wow, that's the coolest title I ever <laughs> heard in government. And then there's another pause, and then they say, and what do you do? Exactly. <laughs> so I don't actually do production of statistics. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a policy job. And my job is really um, three threefold. Um, first and foremost... I safeguard the integrity of federal data. I am charged with making sure that federal statistics are objective, unbiased, um, not politically influenced, Mm -hmm. um, accurate, timely, and relevant. And so um, the law gives OMB the ability to put out uh, regulations and guidance, which I do, on... um, standards for maintaining that. I think one that a lot of people are familiar with is um, when the federal economic indicators are released. Mm -hmm. And we put out um, methods and standards that agencies have to follow if they're going to say this is official U.S. government statistical data. So that's a very important role. Um, The second thing that I do is I coordinate the statistical agencies because we have a decentralized statistical system in the U.S. where the agencies are not one national statistical office, but they're in different departments. Mm -hmm. So there's uh, 13. Um, And then the third thing I do, also laid out in the law, is that I represent the U.S. internationally. So I am the U.S. uh, head of the delegation to the U.N. Statistical Commission. Being chief statistician of the United States can be quite challenging. Dr. Nancy Potok, who recently retired from this position, elucidates on some of the challenges she faced. Um, The top challenges are really around information and availability of information in the world today. Mm-hmm. Things have changed considerably in the last 10, 15 years even, and the pace of change is quite rapid. And my challenge is to make sure that the federal statistical system stays relevant in that environment, uh, which is quite important because we need a meeting of data scientists and statisticians. People think of statisticians sometimes almost as green eyeshade type people who are calculating <laughs> variance and standard deviations and things like that. But actually, um, statistical activity really defines um, information that is used to describe groups, even though it comes from individuals and it's business data or social data. And so that narrow definition of statistics has changed pretty considerably uh, because there's a lot of things that we measure the trend. We want to know what's happening with larger groups. And and if you want high-quality information, it's very important that you think about the mature system of quality measurement that the statistical community has developed over decades. How do we take these traditional statistical methods that rely primarily on surveys and modernize them for using other types of data? It's a big challenge. But the other side of that coin is as you produce better, faster, more granular types of statistical products at lower levels of geography. So protecting confidentiality is is a big, big challenge these days because technology and computing power and the availability of open data um, really create a different environment than we had 
30 years ago. Nancy Potok, the former chief statistician of the United States, describes the U.S. federal statistical system as one marked by decentralization. Yeah, the agencies, um, while they're all statistical agencies, are quite different in their structures and size, actually. Um, and, and except for census and the Bureau of Economic Analysis and BLS, which um, collect more general statistics across the whole economy and country. Many of them are very specialized um, to their departments. So other agencies besides those three would be the National Center for Education Statistics in the Department of Education, National Center for Health Statistics, which is actually in the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, Energy Information Administration, the Statistics of Income Division, which is part of the IRS and looks at tax statistics. Then NSF has their own statistical agency in there. Social Security has a unit. Um, The Bureau of Transportation Statistics is in the Department of Transportation. Um, USDA has two. One is the um, National Agricultural Statistical Service, and they put out a lot of crop estimates in those types of very specific data. But the Economic Research Service is also a statistical agency, and they look at um, things like food security and other types of analysis. So they have a lot of economists. Um, But statistics that they put out are used differently. They're very widespread in use. So some are really um, informing a lot of policy within their own agencies. Oh, interesting. Okay. It's decentralized because of the way it grew up. Okay. So, you know, right in 1790, we had the first census, and that was in the Constitution. But other statistical functions came up in response to need. So some of the very earliest statistical activities were to help Congress set tariffs, so trade information. Mm And then um, education, before long, long before there was an education department, the federal government was collecting education statistics. So that unit in the Department of Education now is 150 years old. Um, Statistics really uh, sort of blossomed during the Depression um, when the government then wanted to really understand labor, um, unemployment, um, how that affected the economy, moving into the war economy. I think that period really matured and grew the federal statistical system. But it it grew so that each agency developed a statistical capability to measure their area of expertise. Um, this is different than what we see in most of the world. Most of the world has something that would be like a national statistical office where a great many of those functions are combined. The benefits of being decentralized on some of these other areas are that you do have a lot of subject matter expertise. So in some countries like Canada, everything is combined into one agency. I I do think that we would benefit, and it is administration policy right now, to try to reorganize and combine those national statistics um, in a more efficient way. Reorganizing and combining national statistics in a more efficient way rests on key strategic priorities. Nancy Potok, the former chief statistician of the United States, identified her key priorities. I think this sort of information revolution that we are going through, yes, where people want more information faster. They're used to just Googling everything. 
Um, so that really um, is a strategic matter, is a very high priority to make sure that when people want that type of data, they're getting high-quality data, mm -hmm. like the you know most accurate data that they can get because of the way that people are accessing information. And um, so that, that's a challenge to the statistical agencies. Um, and the priority is really to modernize the data collection methods to be able to get data out there faster. Surveys take a long time, and they're expensive, and people um, more and more don't like to answer them. It's an intrusion. They don't even pick up the phone if it's a telephone survey. And, of course, going door to door is very expensive. Yeah. So it's hard to collect information that way. But the other thing that's happened as part of this information revolution is that more data is accessible mm -hmm. in less traditional ways. So those are the kinds of challenges. How do we get that data? Um, there's a lot of information that the government has already collected on people. So it resides in not just Social Security records, but it resides in Medicare and Medicaid, resides in uh, veterans' records, in housing records. So why would you spend all this money to go out in a survey and recollect the information mm -hmm. if a lot of the information that you wanted has already been collected? Um, so doing more data sharing between agencies is a big focus. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if we talk a little bit about the foundations for evidence-based policymaking Absolutely. bill, yeah. um, that's a key element of that bill is to encourage more data sharing um, for the statistical agencies to produce this data. But it, again, you know, the big challenge, if you start collecting all of this very granular data from multiple sources, um, the other priority is to safeguard it yeah. at, the, at the other end and make sure that you're really protecting confidentiality and privacy. So those are two big um, strategic initiatives that are in the federal statistical system that we're working cross-agency, yeah. as well as um, putting input into the federal data strategy oh, yes, yes. Um, and implementation of the um, Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking bill is now, um, it's, it's a huge undertaking. Prior to leaving public service, former chief statistician Nancy Potok offered advice to those who are thinking about a career in public service. I would say... You really need to understand what your own sort of passions are, what what you want to accomplish in your work life. If your goal is to make a lot of money, do not come into federal or public service. Um, but if you want to have an outsized effect on the way society runs and answer some of these big questions and really make a contribution, public service is probably a great way to do that. It's not the only way, but it's a great way. Um, and I, I would also tell people, um, especially early in their careers, to put their toe in the water mm -hmm. and try it out. Don't don't make a decision. When I first went into public service, um, when I got into the Presidential Management Fellow Program, I thought I was going to be really in the federal government for two years as a fellow and then figure out you know, where I was going to go from there. And, you know, now it's many decades later, and I keep coming back. Even when I leave the federal government, I keep coming back because it's exciting, actually. So I, I guess my advice to people would be try it, mm -hmm. see if it's for you, um, and don't feel limited by your first experience either. Um, you know, my first experience... 
I knew that I didn't want to stay with that agency in that job. But the one thing that's exciting, I think, about the federal government is the ability to move around and try different things. So I encourage people to be open-minded, experimental, um, and really find what their passion is and follow that. I hope you've enjoyed the leadership stories of four public servants profiled on today's show. Be sure to join me next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.